a guide to mental and emotional wellness. Biblical wisdom, practical principles, clinical insight. By me, Dr. Jennifer Lundgren. Chapter 5, Emotions. Quote, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Quote, Anything that's human is mentionable, and anything that is mentionable can be manageable. When we talk about our feelings, they become less overwhelming, less upsetting, less scary. The people we trust with that important talk can help us know that we are not alone. Fred Rogers Emotions are a beautiful part of who we are as humans. They help us feel things deeply, have love and empathy for others, give us the ability to comfort and soothe, and help us connect to our families and communities. Author Mark Brackett states, Our multiple senses bring us news from our bodies, our minds, and the outside world, and then our brains process and analyze it and formulate our experience. We call that a feeling. Emotions are a critical part of mental wellness, and many people struggle with negative and overwhelming emotions. Oftentimes, people will do anything to escape the feelings they have. It is important to understand that our emotions are an important source of information about what is going on inside of us. While we can't spend all day focused on how we feel, we also can't go through life ignoring what we feel or minimizing our experiences. All of us have ideas about good emotions and bad emotions, and we live in a culture that overwhelmingly wants us not to feel the bad things. The immediate gratification culture teaches us that if we feel any sort of discomfort, we can easily and quickly fix it. When we do feel the bad emotions like sad, lonely, frustrated, disheartened, or even despair, we feel like there's something inherently wrong with us. We go on social media and look at the awesome lives of everyone else, and we begin to feel like we are the only ones who feel this way. Sometimes, even as Christians, when we struggle with overwhelming emotions, we're told just to pray and trust in God and to know our feelings aren't real. We may feel like we aren't good enough Christians or our prayers aren't working. It is difficult for us to admit that we are not okay. C.S. Lewis once observed, The frequent attempt to conceal mental pain increases the burden. It is easier to say my tooth is aching than to say my heart is broken. Our society has had a long history of disregarding feelings. We think of intelligence and emotion as coming from two completely different parts of our bodies, our heads, and our hearts, and which of the two have we been taught to trust the most? Emotions can't be measured with standardized tests the way that intelligence can be measured. IQ relies on cognitive processes such as remembering facts and digits, while emotional intelligence relies on social-emotional processes that focus on evaluating, predicting, and coping with feelings and behaviors, our own and other people's. A formal theory of intelligence was developed in 1990 
and was defined as the ability to monitor one's own and others' feelings and emotions, to discriminate among them, and to use this information to guide one's thinking and actions. Emotions play a critical role in attention, memory, and learning. If you are bored to tears or daydreaming about the weekend, you're less likely to absorb the information you're learning. If you are fearful, the source of the fear occupies all of your thoughts. Even fear of intangible harm like embarrassment, shame, or looking foolish works in a similar way. The emotion may seem silly or vain, but it doesn't matter. Emotions don't respond to cold logic. In education, emotions impact the students' abilities to learn. Students are tired, bored, and stressed. Their teachers are frustrated, pressured, and overwhelmed. The research tells us that emotions determine whether academic content will be processed deeply and remembered. Linking emotion to learning ensures that the instruction is relevant. Emotion is what helps people discover their purpose and passion, and it's what drives their persistence. Emotion is also critical for decision-making. We believe that our ability to reason and think rationally is our highest mental power, above our unruly emotional side. In reality, emotions exert a huge influence over how our minds function and largely determine our actions. If we're feeling something positive, confidence, optimism, contentment, we'll come to one conclusion about what we ought to do. If we're feeling negative feelings like anxiety, anger, or sadness, our decision might be completely different, even with the same set of facts. Anxiety narrows our attention and improves our focus on details. It makes us anticipate what could go wrong. This may not sound like a desirable state, but it's a good frame of mind if you're working on your taxes or filling out a job application. Negative emotions make us weigh facts carefully and err on the side of caution to protect ourselves. The role of emotion in decision-making has been studied scientifically in a number of studies. In one study out of Yale, the researchers took two groups of teachers and had one group recall a negative classroom experience and the other group recall a positive classroom experience. They were all then asked to grade the same middle school essay. The positive mood group marked the essay a full grade higher than the negative mood group, although the majority of teachers report that they don't believe their mood affects how they evaluate papers. In another study, participants were made to feel sad, and they reported perceiving a mountain to be steeper than it actually was. Another study on medical school admissions found that applicants were more likely to be admitted on sunny days than when it rained. Emotions are powerful, and they influence us in many ways, even in ways that we aren't conscious of. Instead of trying to suppress your feelings, criticizing yourself for feeling the way you do, or numbing your feelings through any possible means, start noticing your feelings with curiosity. It's a great place to start. When you begin to notice them without judgment or shame, they start to feel less heavy. Another foundational concept about emotions that is a cornerstone for emotional wellness is the idea that all feelings matter and the bad quote-unquote feelings serve incredibly important functions in our lives. 
Guilt lets us know that we're doing something wrong and that we need to change our behavior. Anxiety gives us information that we're facing a threat and we need to pay attention and be on edge. Grief shows us that we have lost something that we cared about and feel sadness as a result. In the Marvel show WandaVision, a character beautifully said, What is grief but love persisting? It is critically important to notice and to honor your feelings and never criticize yourself for how you feel. Yes, your feelings might be irrational. Yes, they might not make sense. The best thing you can do is approach them with curiosity and self-compassion. Then it is critical that you label your feelings accurately and with nuance. Dr. Susan David, Harvard psychologist and author of Emotional Agility, talks about how often we use the umbrella word of stress. Your spouse asks you how you are and you say, I'm so stressed. Dr. David said that we often use the word stress to describe a range of emotional states, including anxious, overwhelmed, pressured, disappointed, or even depleted, and we label all of these feelings as stress. The experience of feeling depleted is different from the experience of feeling overwhelmed. The experience of disappointed is different than feeling pressured. It's important that you develop an emotional vocabulary so your brain knows how to cope. If you can label your emotions with nuance, it also helps you receive support. If you can talk about your disappointment, your significant other or family member may know how to encourage you in a more helpful way than if you call all of your feelings stress. A growing body of research shows that emotional rigidity, getting hooked by thoughts, feelings, and behaviors that don't serve us, is associated with a range of psychological ills, including depression and anxiety. Meanwhile, emotional agility, being flexible with your thoughts and feelings, so you can respond optimally to everyday situations, is key to well-being and success. Emotional agility supports the approach described by Viktor Frankl, a psychiatrist who survived a Nazi death camp and went on to write Man's Search for Meaning, about leading a more meaningful life, a life in which our human potential can be fulfilled. He wrote, Between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and freedom. Although we as Christians know that our true freedom is found in Christ alone, it's important to pause before we react and open up the space between how we feel and what we do about those feelings. James 1.19 says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. God knows that pausing before we speak in a tense situation can help and also reminds us of the value of listening first. Sometimes when we try to talk about how we are feeling, the people we talk to minimize or scoff at us, try to fix it, or make the conversation about themselves. No wonder so many people self-medicate their feelings away by any means possible, including drugs, alcohol, pornography, overeating, overspending, 
or in more benign ways like binge-watching TV shows or going on their phones. When I started to learn more about the science behind feelings, my life changed. The way I thought about and communicated my feelings changed, and I'm able to better cope and better receive support than ever before. A wonderful tool to help label emotions was developed by Mark Brackett and is called the Mood Meter. Just Google Mood Meter and you'll get all kinds of images for it. I've shared this with clients and students and still frequently use it in presentations about wellness and self-care. The Mood Meter has a square with four quadrants. Feelings are put into categories with the axes of pleasantness and energy. I think it's important for the goal not to be in high pleasantness, high energy states all the time. That's not realistic. And if someone was always in a high energy, high pleasantness mood, that would get really annoying. You wouldn't want to do your taxes or fill out a job application if you were in that type of mood because you would likely be in a free and easy state and not careful to double check your work. It often takes high energy, low pleasantness dates for change to be made or even for advocacy to occur. We don't analyze or rethink our situations if we're always feeling good. I really like the axes of energy and pleasantness. Now when my husband asks how I am, I'll say, I'm feeling pretty good, I'm low energy but moderate pleasantness. That's good data for him in order to have a pulse on how I'm doing. I know a lot of people who feel pressure to perform their jobs in this high-energy, high-pleasantness state or always try to be in that state when they parent, even if they don't truly feel that way. This need to emotionally fake it can often lead to poor health and poor mental health. Emotions aren't something that need to be fixed. Maybe you've had a situation where you talked about a problem to someone and that person immediately jumped in and tried to give you a solution. I challenge you. When someone tells you an issue they're struggling with or tells you something hard, just pause for a moment and think about how that must be for them. This is called empathy, which is defined by Oxford languages as the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. This can be extremely difficult to do, especially when you have your own feelings to understand, the feelings of the other person are uncomfortable for them to share, and you may feel like you just don't have the time or energy to deal with it. Most people feel uncomfortable in the face of the sufferings of others. Fred Rogers once pointed out, People have said don't cry to other people for years and years, and all it has ever meant is, I'm too uncomfortable when you show your feelings. Don't cry. I'd rather have them say, go ahead and cry. I'm here to be with you. Think about how you feel when you see someone who's homeless holding up a sign for money. You might feel uncomfortable. You might feel sad, disgusted, suspicious, or annoyed. It takes courage and emotional discipline to have empathy, and it is one of the greatest gifts you can give to another human. After you have paused and thought about what this person who has shared their challenge is dealing with, think of a word that captures what they just told you. Is it frustrating? Is it overwhelming? Is it demoralizing? All you have to say in response is, that sounds really overwhelming. You can maybe follow it up with a question about how they're doing with it all or how you can support them. 
You don't need to tell them what to do. You don't need to get angry for them or fix it for them. You just need to hear them. You just need to communicate that what they say matters to you. You just need to believe them. You don't need to tell them that they're overreacting, that it's not a big deal, or that everyone in the situation is an idiot. Emotional wellness occurs when we can communicate to ourselves and to others that our emotions matter and that the emotions of others matter. Language also has a huge impact on our brains and even our bodies. Certain words have a lot of baggage attached to them, and when we think about them or hear them, we can change our physiology. I learned this firsthand when I was preparing to give birth. I read a book by the midwife Ina May, and she discussed how emotional safety and language are critical for women who are in labor. One example is instead of calling a contraction a contraction, her midwife community called it a rush. She discussed that what you say and how you say it to a woman in labor can have a profound impact on her body and her mind, and I know this firsthand from my own experiences. Another way that I use this myself is if I'm having trouble sleeping. The word ease brings me calm and relief. So I breathe in and think the word ease. I breathe out and think the word peace. This has a profound impact on what is called the parasympathetic nervous system, which triggers a rest and digest response, the opposite of fight or flight response. Be intentional with the language you use, especially around children. When a child feels fully seen and acknowledged by those around him, it's hard for him not to feel loved and secured. This sense of security, what psychologists call secure attachment, is the stabilizer of a child's emotional life into middle school and adolescence and into the formation of his or her adult relationships. A child who feels free to experience the whole range of emotions without fear of punishment or the need for self-censorship learns these key lessons. Emotions pass. They're transient. There's nothing in mental experience that demands an action. Emotions are not scary. No matter how big or bad any particular feeling seems in the moment, you're bigger than it is. Emotions are teachers. They contain information that can help you figure out what matters to you and to others. This does not mean that parents tolerate tantrums or irrational behavior, but it does mean that you acknowledge and accept their feelings without rebuke. Be intentional with your nonverbals and understand that your emotional health impacts others. It's impossible to be around another human without being influenced by their emotional state. It's a concept called emotional contagion. We all think about times when our own parents were upset and we were influenced by it, even if they didn't say a word. It's motivating for us to take care of our emotional health because we know everyone around us will benefit if we do. Many times, our feelings don't reflect reality. Your feeling is real, but that doesn't mean it's true. If you feel like nobody cares about you or understands you, it doesn't mean that nobody cares about or understands you. Sometimes when my kids are overtired or frustrated, they'll say things like, we never do anything fun or you never listen to me. It doesn't pay for me to argue with them or prove them wrong. 
The most effective response in validating how they feel in the moment is, that is frustrating. If you yourself feel like nobody ever listens to you, remind yourself that this is a feeling and it doesn't mean it's absolutely true. Ask yourself where this feeling is guiding you and use it to ask assertively for what you need. If you feel like your spouse never listens to you, you can communicate it by saying, I'm feeling disconnected and I'd like to talk. Is there a good time when I can have your full attention? Although this sounds like the response of a counselor, it is much more effective than giving feedback out of frustration. The Bible has a lot to say about feelings. One of the primary emotions that the Bible discusses is love. It tells us that God is love, 1 John 4, 8. It reminds us that love binds everything together in perfect harmony, Colossians 3.14. It tells us that everything we do should be in love, 1 Corinthians 16.14, and states that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, 1 Corinthians 13.7. In Romans 15.13, Paul writes, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. The emotions described as the fruit of the Spirit are love, joy, and peace. The Bible says many things about the emotions of anger and anxiety. It says that we should be slow to anger and forgiving to one another, We are to cast our cares on God and not to worry about anything. This can be really challenging and hard to remember. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We're reminded that in the world there'll be trials and tribulation, but with God there is peace, hope, and joy. In John 16, 33, Jesus says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Isn't that so comforting to hear? Sometimes it feels like the world has overcome us and has overcome Christians. But as we know, just because it feels that way doesn't mean it's true. It's overwhelming living in a fallen, sinful world. But as God reminds us, He has overcome the world. We can turn our frustration into fascination. The world and our brains cannot even comprehend the peace that Christ gives to us. Our logic cannot understand it because it is so powerful. When we're feeling despair, God tells us that he is with us. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Our spirits can feel crushed by the suffering in the world. We can feel crushed by the news. We can feel crushed by our social media feeds. But we know that we have a God of peace and love, and we have access to the peace that surpasses all understanding. Thanks be to God.
If you'd like to purchase your copy of Jenna's book, just go to the Time of Grace store or click the link in today's episode notes. Thanks for listening.